Hi and welcome to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life. I'm Ren Levy. Did you ever wonder how different you'd be today if you grew up under a different set of circumstances? Like, I can imagine maybe that I wasn't born in Israel. So I might not have joined the Navy, which became so integral to the skill set I developed and the kind of man I am today. And you know, I'm obsessed with history, but maybe I wouldn't be so into it had I grown in a less historically significant part of the world. I could have gone into a different line of work. Or what if in another life, I grew up rich and didn't have to work at all? Then I could spend all my days doing what I really want to do. Hmm, such a nice day here in Hawaii. Uh, Nate? Yes, sir? Fetch me a melon. Right away, sir. Oh, and Nate? I'm tired. Rub my feet and really get in there, especially the corns. Yes, sir? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's it. Oh, man, that's good. Go on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. What, what? What? Rand, stop it. You're chewing on the mic cover and playing footsie with my mixer. Ah, oh, sorry. <clears throat> the year is 1999. The internet is now in homes around the United States and the world. Yahoo, eBay, Amazon, what were all just startups a few years earlier, are now the hottest companies in the world. Really, any half-baked company with a dot-com at the end is running rampant in the stock market, even if all they do is sell toys or pet food. Whole new industries are popping up and millions of jobs along with them. Everybody wants in. Alexei Ivanov is exactly the kind of person to benefit from the boom because when it comes to coding, he's a little short of prolific. According to his CV, Alexei is either good or proficient in HTML, JavaScript, SQL, C, C++, Assembler, good or excellent with MS-DOS, Linux, Solaris, every version of Windows, with a comprehensive understanding of LAN, WAN, DNS, TCP, IP, FTP, DNS, equally proficient with IBM, Sun Microsystems, HP, and Cisco Hardware. And that's just a sampling from a much longer list. To read out his entire CV now would take too long. The point here is that Alexei knew his stuff. He could have qualified for a job at any internet company in the world. But Alexei Ivanov was born into a different set of circumstances than you and I. He was a lot like us in other ways, bright, talented, technical. But instead of being from America or Germany or Japan, Alexei was born in Russia. And not even Moscow or St. Petersburg, but... From a little place called Chelyabinsk, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere in Russia. That's Ray Pompon, director of F5 Labs. It was a little famous for a while because that's where a meteor landed and was caught on film. 
There's a lot of great footage of it on YouTube. A loud bang, people flying across rooms from the shockwave, building walls and roofs busting open, things flying, and the bright god-like meteor that looks like God himself was coming down to visit Earth. Talk about a cursed place. It's kind of like heavily polluted, and, and there was a lot of um, kind of Soviet radioactive work there. Maybe if you or I grew up there, amid the radioactivity, the pollution, dodging meteors falling from space, we would have ended up like Alexei Ivanov and his friends. These guys are really sharp, technically, but they had nowhere to go with this. You know, at the time, there was, there was nowhere, nothing to really do with this in Russia. There wasn't a big tech industry. So what do you do with all the potential in the world and nowhere to use it? Alexei first tried what many of us in his position would, getting the hell out of Chelyabinsk. In April 1999, he started looking for jobs in America. He did so, though, with a little twist. Rather than just applying to jobs one by one, he went to Dice.com, a careers website, and downloaded a database from their servers. It was easy, he later recalled. With the raw data, he didn't have to drudge through job postings one by one. Quote, I wrote some scripts, and in a few hours, I was sending my resume to 5,000 jobs. End quote. Among those thousands of jobs, he got plenty of replies. But all of them went cold when Alexei revealed that he lived in Russia, had no experience working for American companies, and would need sponsorship to move. You could imagine how demoralizing it would have been, knowing he was good enough, yet still having no prospects. What was he to do? A computer whiz with nowhere to productively use his skills. Perhaps you can tell where this is going. According to CSO Online, Alexei already had some experience with cybercrime by this point. Not long after graduating from Chelyabinsk Technical State University, one of the better schools in his region, he'd fallen in with a group of hackers who operated a company called tech.net.ru. Their speciality was a time-honored classic, stealing credit cards, then using them to buy things online. They had built this entire bot infrastructure that would create fake accounts on PayPal and eBay and then hold auctions, fake auctions or you know real auctions with fake people to buy stuff. Botnets, credit card laundering, fake identities. The real trick, though, was the shipping process. Tech.net.ru would use their stolen cards to order, say, books and CDs from Amazon or Bars and Noble, and have them shipped to different locations in neighboring Kazakhstan. They'd hire young women to receive the packages, then a member of the company would make the hours-long trip to come pick them up and drive them back home. Then they resold the merchandise to stores around Chelyabinsk, which coveted their CDs in particular. Evidently, much of the supply of commercial CDs in Chelyabinsk were cheap pirates from Bulgaria. 
there's a lot of thought here in this. It's, you know, a lot of enterprise entrepreneurial thinking. Carding was pretty small game. It was much more fun and usually more profitable to hack companies directly. Like, for example, when they targeted a new payment processing startup called PayPal. Alexei was the brains behind that one. It was a three-pronged approach. First, they installed malware onto eBay that collected email addresses associated with customers who used PayPal. Second, they set up their own domain, paypal.com, but with an uppercase I instead of a lowercase L, with a homepage that copied the real thing as closely as possible. Next, the hackers emailed those eBay customers, promising a $50 prize they could claim by logging into the Mirror site. The customers who fell for it handed their PayPal logins straight to tech.net.ru. Easy as that. It wasn't quite as lucrative as it sounds, though. As Alexei later said, quote, We weren't really malicious. We could have sent it to thousands of people, but we only sent it to 150. We got about 120 passwords. We did that mainly for fun. End quote. Alexei wasn't what you'd call a prolific hacker at this point. He was small time. But that might be because his heart just wasn't in it. The same year he was hacking PayPal accounts, he was sending out resumes to get a real honest job in the tech industry. But, as we said, it just wasn't working out. It was only at the apex of these two paths, down one trying to find honest work and the other making ends meet through dishonest means, that Alexei Ivanov came up with the idea that earned him a malicious life episode. As he told CSO Online, quote, I thought, why don't I convince companies about my skills? And in order for me to convince them, I have to demonstrate them. End quote. Alexei's idea for how to demonstrate his skills to potential employers was inspired by one of the earliest hacks he'd ever pulled off. It was December 1997. He was still a student when he and a friend breached the servers of a local ISP, then downloaded a database of usernames and passwords. The teenagers didn't do anything nefarious with the data. It was mostly just an exercise in whether they could pull it off. They notified the ISP, and remarkably, the victim offered them jobs. The salary was only about $75 a month, so they turned it down. But it was the seed of something much bigger. It was kind of like a you know, precursor to what we would see in ransomware, where people's networks would get broken into, stuff would get messed with, and then they would get essentially like a blackmail note or a ransom note to say like, hey, we got your stuff, pay us some consulting fees, like $50,000, and you know, we'll tell you what we did, we'll tell you how to fix it, and we will give you back your data. A prosecutor for the United States Department of Justice wrote about what it was like to be at the receiving end of one of Alexei's famous security consultations. Here's the slightly oversimplified account from How to Be a Digital Forensic Expert Witness. Quote, 
Late one evening, you get a telephone call from your work that something is wrong with the computer network. When you arrive and review the logs, you learn that someone has gained access to your system, grabbed the password file, and FTP'd it to an IP address registered in Russia. You also learn that the intruder probably gained initial access through a still active account that had been assigned to a former employee. Once the intruder elevates his privileges to a system administrator, he installed a sniffer to capture usernames and passwords. Using an employee account, the intruder gained access to a server that processed credit card transactions of customers and FTP'd a large file back to Russia. You remove the sniffer and are in the process of changing all the usernames and passwords on your system when someone contacts you by way of Internet Relay Chat, IRC. Your system securities suck, the message tells you. The messenger then introduces himself as an expert in computer security living in Russia and offers to fix the holes in your security for a fee of 5,000 US dollars. After consulting with management and the company lawyers, you reply to the Russian quote-unquote expert that you do not do business with criminals. That night, your web server crashes, effectively shutting down the internet-based portion of your business. In some cases, if people didn't pay, like more things would get deleted or destroyed and data would go somewhere. But they really didn't know what was going on. Alexei and his friends hit websites, companies, and banks. When he gained root access to the servers of the Online Information Bureau, OIB, of Vernon, Connecticut, he was able to steal tens of thousands of credit cards and merchant account information. When the OIB refused to pay a $10,000 fee, he wrote them an email. This is a verbatim reading. Quote, Now imagine please somebody hack your network and not notify you about this, he downloaded atomic software with more than 300 merchants, transfer money, and after this did RM-RF, and after this, your company be ruined. End quote. To clarify, RM-RF is a command in Linux that wipes all the data in a directory all at once, recursively. Alexei is probably referring to a scenario where a hacker runs rm-rf in the root folder, wiping out OIB's entire database in an instant. Anyway, the message continues, quote, I don't want this, and because this, I notify you about possible hacks in your network. If you want, you can hire me, and I'm always check security in your network. What do you think about this? An ISP and e-commerce company called Speakeasy experienced something similar. In October 99, Alexei gained admin access to their IT systems, most notably the databases where they held credit card information. Afterwards, Alexei emailed the company recommending they hire him to perform a security review of the systems he just hacked. After refusing to do so for two months, the discourse escalated into threats. In the last week of December, Speakeasy lost access to some of their IT systems. And so, at the turn of the millennium, Alexei Ivanov was slowly becoming one of the most prolific corporate hackers in the world.
To expand his quote-unquote security reviews business, he partnered with a more business-oriented hacker, Vasily Gorshkov, also from his hometown. Together, their cybersecurity business was becoming more and more sophisticated and profitable. Their targets couldn't stop them. Law enforcement couldn't stop them. Malicious Life is sponsored by CyberReason. There is nothing better than a live simulation, especially when you're fighting cyber attacks that are becoming more and more complex. Defenders are always looking for the critical edge to reverse the attacker's advantage, and it's only through live attack simulations that you can truly see what might provide you that winning edge. Join CyberReason's global attack simulations to watch firsthand how attackers use the latest infiltration methods and execute on sophisticated malicious operations, and more importantly, how to end these operations before they happen. Reserve your spot today at cyberreason.com slash attack sim. Invita Security was a company based in Seattle near the University of Washington. It was a high-tech, forward-thinking network security startup. You'd think, based on that description, that they might have been hired to stop Alexei and Vasily. But you'd be exactly wrong. Instead, they were in the market for security talent and liked the look of Alexei's long, impressive resume. They wanted to hire him. They reached out to arrange an intro call. Vasily was the one who picked up. He spoke the better English of the two. On the phone, Vasily suggested that rather than a more conventional evaluation process, Invitia could let him and Alexei hack into their network. After all, if they could defeat the security company's own security systems, then surely it would prove their worth much more than any job interview could. Invita agreed to the terms. They spent some time preparing for the test and then, in October, challenged the Russians to beat them. It wasn't a fair fight. Alexei, with Vasily by his side, managed to breach the Invita network in mere minutes. And that was all the evidence Invita needed. They made the visa and travel arrangement so that Alexei and Vasily could come and interview in person for security analyst slash consultant roles. On November 9th, Alexei and Vasily said goodbye to their families and finally, after all this time, headed off to America. They were thrilled, curious and nervous. On the flight, Alexei ordered drinks to celebrate. After nearly 48 hours of traveling in all, the plane landed in Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. The Russians stepped off the plane, grabbed their suitcases, and were greeted by some representatives from Invita. Together, the corporate reps and their prospective new hires took the half-hour or so drive to the company's offices. Along the way, Alexei and Vasily gazed out the windows at the city that was going to be their new home. One wonders what they were thinking in those moments. Two kids who'd never made it far out of Chelyabinsk, let alone America. 
they drove past the office buildings housing new technology companies thriving off the new economy. Maybe their hacking days were over. Maybe instead of attacking these companies, they could be working for one of them. After about a half hour's drive, they arrived at their destination, a shared office building with rows of little startups tucked away in booths. They walked by their soon-to-be colleagues towards Invita's offices. Or so they thought. They don't do things, they don't do half measures, the FBI. So, you know, I was starting to go like, oh, this is, yeah, this is a really big thing. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Join us for the second part of the episode to find out how Alexei's and Vasily's little adventure in the U.S. ends. Our two previous episodes, the Marcus Hutchins story and the In Defense of the NSA episode, both created quite a commotion on Twitter, so let's mention some of your notable tweets and replies. We'll start with Hutchins. We asked you, should black hat hackers who regret their past actions and turn over a new leaf be forgiven for what they did? 8% of you thought that, no, they are criminals and should not be forgiven. 9% think only the talented ones should be forgiven. And a huge majority, more than 80% of the votes, say that, yes, we should give black hat hackers a second chance. For example, Christian Vargas from L.A. writes, Everyone makes mistakes. Twitter user Witness adds, quote, I think absolutely. Many black hats did what they did at the time before the creation of an industry where they could use their skills to benefit others. If they could have hacked legally, many of them would have chosen that route. End quote. And Dusty writes, quote, We make mistakes sometimes. Intention is key with every choice we make. I think that a troubled past can be leveraged to a successful future. The InfoSec community is full of ex-black hats that might have broken a law here and there. End quote. These are all valid views, of course, but personally, I can't help but wonder if the poll's results were similar if the said criminals were not black hat hackers but, you know, regular criminals, like in real life criminals, people who rob old ladies instead of banks and corporations. I'm not saying I don't think that black hat hackers should be allowed to have a second chance, but I do think that we as a community might be more than a little biased towards people we feel are not that different from us. And so we can relate with their hardships and misfortunes, maybe more than we can relate with the hardships and misfortunes of people who we don't have so much in common with. What do you think? Am I wrong here? Tag me on Twitter and let me know your thoughts. Anyway, here are some more tweets. The Sixth Sense from LA wrote, quote, I think this depends on how dangerous it was for the victims, meaning if it is, was a life-and-death situation where someone could die, I can't find much, if any, sympathy, even if they made good on it. The level of damage matters. 
end quote. Victor Hugo, who describes himself as a researcher and a rabid consumer of InfoSec news, a great source of ideas for a sequel for Les Miserables, if you ask me, Victor, he writes, quote, only if they contribute to the greater good and righting their wrongs, preferably without trying to profit by promoting their notorious past, end quote. And finally, Decentrataurus.eth, an FPGA developer. Hey, I used to develop FPGAs myself. High five. He writes, quote, Suffice to say, any nation state that imprisons a hacker rather than absorbing and learning from their skills is hashtag NGMI, end quote. Now, I had no idea what hashtag NGMI means, so I googled it, and it's short for not going to make it which in the current context of crypto trading means a trader that could miss a huge profit on a certain trade. Next, let's talk about your responses to the B-side episode about the NSA. And I have to say that at least on my Twitter feed, the NSA is not that popular to say the least. Midori, the Japanese-Canadian electrical engineer, writes, quote, Are those fears justified? Midori is referring to my question at the intro to the episode. They are already doing it. They have justified it. Read up on Snowden's information releases. End quote. Oded Arbel, a fellow Israeli, writes, and I've shortened this thread a bit, quote, classic NSA apologetic. One, what we do is just because our secret court manned by unnamed judges whose decisions are secret and unsigned says it's fine. Two, if you don't like it, you should petition our deadlocked legislator to change the law. Ira Winkler did say, I'm paraphrasing, we do shit because we can. Everybody knows that the alternative is we nuke them. Thanks to saying it for what it is, the US is an authoritative regime. End quote. That's a bit extreme, no doubt, but not as extreme as David Castle's response. Quote, Really disappointed in giving someone that used to work at the NSA a chance to spread the bullshit that basically they need to spy on Americans to keep us safe. That whole interview was so predictable. This kind of stuff is why I stopped listening to Darknet Diaries. End quote. Well, David, I can't speak for Jack's Darknet Diaries, but I personally think that it's more than okay to interview people who work or have worked for the NSA in the past. You might not agree with what the NSA is doing as an organization, but as people, as human beings, most of them are good people who really care about protecting Americans. Let's not forget that. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was produced by Nate Nelson with editing and sound design by Benora Bari. Our website is malicious.life and you can follow us on Twitter at at maliciouslife and me at at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music.